Which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay. What's the second best? There is no second best. There is no second best crypto asset. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Why Bitcoin Show. I'm your host, Dale Warburton. It's a weekly podcast on why Bitcoin matters and what makes it completely different to all other cryptocurrencies. If you're interested in Bitcoin and you'd like to distill crypto fact from fiction, you've come to the right place. Alrighty, Roo, we are recording. I am very stoked to introduce the one and only, the man from Looking Glass, the man behind the Looking Glass, Daz B. How's it going, man? Dale, pleasure to be here, buddy. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me on. Pumped to have a chat. Yeah, no, very stoked. Um, I yeah, we had, we had a little date some time back, but I think between the two of us, we both weren't up for it at the time, but. Uh, I think post Bush Bash, I said, like, I really got to talk to this fella, especially since I decided to go watch UFC instead of your talk, which I'm really interested in. But I was like, I'm so sorry. It is like one of my passions next to the next to the Bush and next to Bitcoin. So I was like, I'm sorry. My boys are fighting. I got to watch them. That's right. I'd choose UFC over me too, mate. Don't worry about it. Uh, uh, that's good. <laughs> it's hilarious. Did they so, win? I think, okay, there are some people here who perhaps aren't familiar with your work, your magic, and uh, we've got some folks uh, listening from around the world. I mean, it blows my mind that we have people in Sweden and South Africa and all parts of the world listening. So not everyone is familiar with you and your work. I'd be interested to hear how you describe yourself and perhaps you can just give us the sort of whistle-stop tour of how you found yourself in the world of Bitcoin. Sweet. Yeah. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the intro. So yeah, Daz B from Looking Glass Education. So I'm part of a educational effort amongst some um, prominent Bitcoiners such as uh, Sir Greg Foss and uh, Seb Bunny and Dahlia Platt. We're the sort of main sort of team behind Looking Glass, and um, basically we sort of come together. Uh, it was a bit, well, nearly two years ago now, just starting to sort of frame up what education needs to look like for wage earners. That's really where we focus our attention is to try and bring the complexities of the financial world and macroeconomics and all that sort of thing, distill it down into easy to understand language that everyday sort of people who slave their you know butts off for, for wages can understand. And obviously Bitcoin plays such a massive role in, in what we do and what we think. And, you know, we've done collectively thousands of hours worth of research into finance and, and economics and macroeconomics and how markets work and how money works and all these sort of things So we you know the sort of premise was how do we distill down thousands of hours worth of research into a couple of hours for somebody at home to play along and that's basically where where we focus our time and uh we've we've recently just um just launched a book called beers for bitcoin free plug thanks thanks for that Dale. there we and, go uh, i've read it though i was going to mention it but yeah oh, awesome. did. Uh, thanks thanks for the support mate appreciate it and um yeah it, it was basically the intent of that was to same sort of concept you know bitcoin can be a complex beast so we were kind of like what does somebody who's new to this who needs to have an understanding of it what do they need to know? What's enough of the understanding without going deep dive into the technical? So that was the the aim for that, is to give you enough of the understanding around the technical without getting too bogged down into the detail around exactly, um, you know, 
how this complex beast works. But so that was the intent, and that will be free as a course as well in in due in due course. Pardon the pun, but um in in the next few months that'll be up on lookingglasseducation.com as well for people to do for free. Brilliant, man! I love it. Uh, I actually did read it, and obviously, you know, being a bit of a bitcoiner myself, a lot of it wasn't news to me, but. I like to read as much as I can about it because I always want to be able to steer someone towards something that might resonate. And look, I came at it from more of a finance side of things. So to an extent, uh, some of the stuff was concepts that I had learned and read about for many years. But I think it's a really good primer for someone to get their toes wet. I particularly found a lot of value where you describe mining because there I was weak, weak AF. And it really sort of put the pieces together. Don't ask me to repeat it, but it made sense when I read it. So I really appreciated that. And I think the more books we have that are beginner friendly, uh, the the more we are able to just steer people in various directions. Because what I find is not everyone is going to resonate with the same book. Like everyone always says, read the Bitcoin standard. Not a lot of people are necessarily going to jump straight into that. I think you really want something that is perhaps just that layer below that is more accessible to ordinary people because if what we want bitcoin to do and what we think bitcoin is going to do in the future i think we're going to need something that's a little bit more accessible and dare i say less dry not everyone is champing at the bits to read about misers and uh, von mises (laughs) and austrian economics and all of that jazz so i found it to be really interesting and from my perspective would highly recommend it on the on the looking glass side, that journey must have been really fascinating. So I think I've heard you say elsewhere you had preemptively just got in touch with the likes of Foss and I think James Lavish too. I mean, do you want to tell us just that story about how you actually managed to get in touch with these heavy hitters? Because uh, their DMs don't seem to be open to me, unfortunately. <laughs> well, funny, funny enough, um, Foster's was at the time, so I don't know if he's he shut it off, but he'll he'll take he'll take messages from everyone. He's an incredible human, he really is, and he's a real great networker of bringing people together. Uh, that's what what I think you know Foster's real big strength is. So I started doing a deep. I come from at the same same angle as yourself uh, from a finance perspective. Value investing was my bread and butter. That's what I. Uh, was teaching myself basically how to do using the plethora of accessible resources that are available in this day and age, which we're really lucky. And uh, I work as a, as a tradie. I'm an electrician by trade with an engineering background. So I, I earn good, decent money and I work amongst other people who make good, decent money, disposable income. And most of those blokes that I work with, so I work um, in a depot of about 60 blokes and we typically always work in, in sort of groups of four so you're always sort of having different conversations with different people and and a lot of those guys do invest they do double in 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 stocks and you know i wouldn't say bonds but definitely around stocks and they've you know dabbled in cryptocurrency and in in altcoins and so forth in the past and uh, shit coins so- you can call them what they are jazz beautiful that's good <laughs> they are shit coins um <laughs> And uh, so I was having a lot of conversations and I was starting to peel off the layers around macro and how money works and all this sort of thing. And I just found it fascinating. I just went right down that rabbit hole and was just absorbing heaps of content. And I was just chatting to heaps of different different guys around how, how money works and how finance works and how the economies work and interest rates are controlled and how the money printer goes burr and all this sort of thing. And I went, 
I, I'm, you know, I was having a lot of the same conversation. So I just decided I'd just put it into written form because there was, you know, I could, I just thought I could reach more people. I could reach my Facebook friends and family and all that sort of thing. So that's really where it started. And then I, I wrote a, I wrote one on bonds and I never invested in bonds. I knew roughly how bonds worked and had to do a bit more research just to really make sure what I'd put in this article was correct. And I thought, I'll send this to this Foss guy and maybe he'll take the time to read it, which I was blown away. I wasn't expecting a reply, but he read it. And not only did he read it, he said, someone's just recently reached out to me saying that all of this is too complicated. You guys should chat. And that's basically where the birth of Looking Glass came to be. So along the lines, you know, Seb joined the fold and then Dahlia and then James Lavish come into the fold as well, basically as a, as a friend of Greg's to say, this guy's writing this information, this newsletter. We've got to get him into the fold. And so since from there, so James was involved um, for, for, for quite a while, but he's obviously just got so much on his plate now with the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund and his own informationist newsletter. He, he's basically, um, you know, he's still there as an advisor and a great contact for us and a great, you know, proponent of what we're doing. But um, he's he's got bigger fish to fry. Oh, damn, yeah. He's doing a sensational job of doing it. But yeah, that that's sort of where it come about, mate. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. I, for anyone listening who hasn't sort of jumped into any of James's content, like can highly recommend it. I don't get to read all of it because frankly, there's so many good people that you can read and he's so good at explaining very complex brilliant. things, uh, almost like you're five years old. And so, yeah, it's pretty awesome how you've actually sort of took the bull by the horns and started to learn it. And it's a common thread throughout Bitcoiners in general that they sure. tend to go deep and they're generally well read, and it's something that I've sort of established in you know our discussions. Uh, even though we haven't had thousands of them, it's just certainly something that both of us have done a fair bit of. And I guess in the context of people who aren't as keen on the deep dives, um, you need stuff that is more accessible to average people. So yeah, I absolutely love what you guys are doing, and I, of course, the challenge being is that you're doing a lot of this pro bono or shall i say all of it pro bono and i yeah sincerely hope for your guys sake that in the future there'll be a way for you guys to be able to sort of get something back for the thousands of hours and you know no doubt um in just discussions in being able to put all this content out for free because that's very much i guess the bitcoin ethos from the outset you know i've found just since i came out the bitcoin closet i used to be known as the bitcoin shepherd i was just this anon with a handful of followers and whinging about this and that. And it's only until I started coming out and talking to people as Dale Warburton that I actually found, wow, actually the community does give you something back. So I'm getting so much joy and pleasure just from having great conversations. And, you know, I too hope that one day this is what I can do because I just can't get enough of it, man. Something Seb and I have often said was, um, you know, it's it's just that concept of, of proof of work and, putting trust in the glowing orange light, mate, it'll, it'll show the way eventually, you know, and uh, taking that sort of long, long time preference approach to, to everything, you know, we're putting in the hard work now. We've often said this time next year looks a lot different than this time this year, you know, just with the mm -hmm. bull market around the corner and where uh, we think we're doing the right things, Um, you know, trying to remain true to our, our goal of making this, content we never wanted price to be a barrier to entry to this vital education um yeah. and that's why we've remained true to that ethos and there's been pl plenty of opportunities along the way to team up with with various you know partners and so forth and it's just like if it's not the right fit let's not force it 
and um and and, and things will just come eventually you know it'll work absolutely have faith in the mission man and I, i'm starting to see or oh, reaping the rewards if you like and i'm really early in my journey so yeah i certainly also have that long-term view and i think you know a year from now bull run or no bull run i know that i'm going to be in a very different place than i am today and I'm, i can almost say for sure that you guys will too so yeah uh you know aside from us aussies yeah i think a lot of people also cheering you guys on so obviously this is the why bitcoin show Daz, and it wouldn't be the why bitcoin show without a little bit of a discussion around the c word um my favorite thing in the world uh crypto i would love to get your take on really what makes bitcoin fundamentally different and tell us a little bit about your view around how crypto fits into the picture relative to Bitcoin. Probably the best way to describe that is is going back to when I realized that it was Bitcoin only and, and, not, and not crypto. And that was around when you have to teach something, you have to really deeply understand it, right? And when I started writing these articles is I was writing about a, a particular financial concept, like say take inflation, and then I would tie Bitcoin into the end of this. And when I was writing these articles, I had a, you know, quote unquote, diversified approach to to crypto, right? But um, I was luckily always smart enough to for for Bitcoin to be like the mainstay in, in most of that allocation. Um, so at the time, I, I can recall pretty clearly it was um like Bitcoin at ninety percent, Ethereum at five percent, and you know, dabbling in other all sorts of degenerate shitcoinery for the other five, right? But it come to come to writing an article on on gold ownership actually. And at the time I had some ERC20 tokens, which were a gold-backed ERC20 token on Ethereum. And um I was starting to write about this and if I was going to recommend this thing, I needed to understand it. So peeling back the layers of what was securing this you know because you have to put trust in the per- in the person issuing that token you also have to put an inherent amount of trust in the protocol upon which it's built and that's really where i started doing a bit more of a deep dive on ethereum and i thought oh well in this article i'll write about why i why i own ethereum as well and then i, I come to the realization that i just didn't know why i own this piece of shit like <laughs> it was n- not decentralized it had a definite like center uh decision making you know around a few prominent players in the space they changed their monetary policy they had a history of rolling back the blockchain when something didn't go that they liked so i was like holy shit this thing is furthest from decentralization that than i can than i can imagine and it was from that day on i went i'm 100 bitcoin so it was only through that act of having to teach that i really well, okay, now I really need to understand how this thing works, and and that was oh, I'm so grateful that I that I went down that journey because I don't know. I think eventually I would have come 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 full circle, but had I not done that to that degree, I, I probably wouldn't have got there as early. Yeah, I, I would say probably it's just because you're like intellectually honest and you care about the the outcome, and you really just want to be right. So yeah, and much like you, I similarly have to kind of write things down, particularly if I want to understand it, it becomes quite hard just to read something and go, yeah, yeah, got it. So I wrote a thesis, um, which I haven't even put anywhere public. And I should actually at some point, because I, I might be somewhat embarrassed by it because I think there's going to be some mistakes, but that wasn't about Jan 21. Never went down the shit coinery route um, from that perspective until September 21, because that's when I thought, oh man, these things are going to run much harder than Bitcoin. I'll just do what everyone suggests. 
you know, buying all these shit coins. I bought a little, I think I bought about seven or eight Algorand and this weird sports token and a few other things. And, you know, after four months, I just was like looking at my portfolio and I was going, what am I doing here? Like, what is this shit? And it's all down. This stuff is supposed to be up. And I was like, so it wasn't as if I was tricked or I thought there was a there, there. Like, no, no, no. I was just a greedy pig. And, you know, that's the bottom line. So then eventually sold it in like one of almost like a rage quit of crypto. I was like, fuck this stuff. I have no interest in these Mickey Mouse games. You're not money. You're certainly not decentralized. Like, I don't know what the hell you are. But if your leader is sitting around there dancing in a, in a unicorn outfit on stage, like, I'm not interested, bro. Sorry. I'll, I'll let you losers play with that kind of money. But yeah, not for me. I think that's actually a really, like, reasonable characterization. And like, some people, some people go down the path of just hating on shit coins and they struggle to articulate it. But I think in your case, having done the work, it just, uh, it seems as if uh, you've got really strong reasons. And uh yeah, I mean, perhaps you should just be lucky that you were 90% Bitcoin and uh, only sort of 5% ETH and not some other sort of uh, ratio, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, so it wasn't that much to to unwind. And truth be told, there's probably a MetaMask account, you know, with some pretty, you know, with a whole heap of shit coins that you can't sell, right? Because the gas fee, I remember I tried to offload all these things and all the gas fees were like, you know, more than the, the value of the token itself. Like, well, what the hell are these things? And, you know, see you later. Totally. It's, yeah, no, like, I, I totally agree. I didn't I never even used a MetaMask because I just thought, well, like I couldn't figure out like what wallets you're supposed to use with these shit coins. And like, yeah. you know, are, are they like the ERC ones and then there's like different types and I'm like, what is this? Yeah, I don't even thing? know I don't even know how these guys ride into that, keep track of all that. Because <laughs> like, there's so many different protocols and wallets and different things. It's like impossible to keep keep a hold of. That's why, you know, Bitcoin is the is the simplest investment monetary good i've ever come across out of everything i've done that's why i'm such a big proponent because it puts the ability for people to get ahead back in the power and the hands of those people like it's the easiest thing to understand you just dca over a long time you stack it away for a long term and it's going to improve in purchasing power you don't have to go and read about you know, you don't have to go and read a hundred books like, you know, yeah. like I tried to do with, with learning how to value invest. You don't have to read balance sheets and keep up on, on their bloody um, filings every quarter, you know, to make sure that they're not going bust. You know, it, it just, it's just simple. It's just, you work hard, you hustle, you save the excess and you come back, you know, four years later and increased in purchasing power. It's, it's simple as. It is simple as exactly. And, Something that Wiz said in a recent chat I had with him was nobody that has invested in Bitcoin and remained in it for four years has enjoyed a return of less than 100%. And that sort of was eye-opening to me because I never actually realized you know, I, that it was that dramatic. I always said nobody's lost money over four years, but I didn't realize it was 100%. And then uh, old Sir William of Rotherham decided to code it up in chat GPT and spin up a website as he's inclined to do. So, and then you can just put in any date you like, I'll put it in the show notes actually, where you can go awesome. literally plug any dates in history, as long as it's four years ago. And you'll be able to see that you've, I think the lowest in, is about 106 or 113%. So it's really simple. And it's funny how you say that value investing is actually complicated. You know, they'll say, mm. Oh yeah, you just got to buy 
good companies with low levels of debt, good earnings, perhaps even a competitive moat, and they'll just chuck out a couple other things. And you think, okay, well, how big is the investable universe? Like how many stocks are we talking about? And like how many, uh, you know, fund sheets and how many sort of uh, company uh, filings and quarterly reports and earnings reports and all these different things are you going to have to read? And you're not even going to have an edge because you're going to have to pick a space. You can't just, you can't know everything about retail uh, or, you know, because there's way too many. So you're going to have to get uber niche and, I'm just in the process of sort of wrapping up this book, which as I'm reading, I'm going like my old fiat brain was going, God damn, there's some really sensible stuff here. There's a guy by, uh, his name's William Green, uh, uh, richer, wiser, happier. Mm. He's uh, he, he's also on the investors podcast, the one that Preston Pish runs. And there's all these different approaches to value investing. And some people would just go find the most completely unappreciated, unappreciated stocks in the far flung corners of the earth, shitty markets like that. Just nobody wanted to touch. Oh, there's been a coup there. Let's go visit. Let's go and see what's happening. I'm like, that's not accessible. Meanwhile, with Bitcoin, it's just like, do you know what? Focus on what makes you happy to save what you can and just leave it, take it into self custody. It couldn't be simpler and people tend to overcomplicate the whole investment idea. But if you also take into account Bitcoin's the best performing asset over this year, and I think ever over, you know, I think three years or five years and just go back, you think to yourself on a risk adjusted basis, there probably isn't a better opportunity, at least in our generation. And it can be simpler. So it's like, what a gift that we have as just lonely plebs who don't want to dedicate our whole life to you know, studying company financials and that sort of jazz. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And it, like it talks to this reinforcing mechanism of passive investing. So, you know, where, where you even read most of those older value investing books, like the, the intelligent investor, it's a tome. Like if you get through that thing, you're doing well, right? But yeah. he basically talks about all these strategies to to find the moats, find undervalued companies, blah, blah, blah. But the the overarching premise is he's like, but most of the time just buy the market and you'll outperform everyone else. Yeah. So that's that's the other like sort of tragic thing in a way is that we're now as plebs in your superannuation or your 401k, depending on what part of the world you're in, or even as a as a uh, an approach for yourself for an active investing uh, for yourself, most of the time, if you can't value a stock, you're going to buy an ETF, and you're going to buy an e an, in an index ETF like the S and P five hundred. But what that absolutely guarantees you are doing is in 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 the last you know sort of 10, 15 years in the least is making sure you're buying the absolute top of most of the market valuations for these companies in their histories. So every dollar that flows into these ETFs, over over 45% of the capital inflows into markets at the moment are passive inflows, which means mm. the money coming wow. in is doing zero price discovery on what is what is what price you should be paying for a stock. And most people that you talk to if they're if they even are picking individual stocks you know, they'll say, oh, I bought BHP for 46 bucks. It's like, oh, that's great. What's it worth? What do you mean? What's it worth? I only bought it for 46 because it was, you know, $48 yesterday. It's got to go back up, right? And it's like, they're not doing any price discovery. They're not doing discount cash flow analysis. They're not looking at what is that company worth per share? Like if you were to go yeah. and buy a cafe, you know, you go down the corner shop and you buy your cafe, you're going to want to say, how many cups of coffee do you sell? What are your overheads? How many staff do you have? Like, what what's your profit per cup? 
that's yeah. a it's a no-brainer but for some reason when you go and you look at a, at a stock nobody nobody thinks twice to actually ask those questions and that's essentially what you're doing yes granted it becomes a lot more complicated and that's the sort of the, the point again that's why bitcoin's so simple but if if that's not doesn't interest you then all you're going to do is buy the etf which makes sure that you're paying the top dollar for these valuations, like the, the the highest that Tesla has ever been valued. You know, and if you look back at like the the normal investor metrics, like a price to earnings ratio, for example, price yeah. to earnings ratio is a is a loosely based um, metric that kind of says how many years is it going to take me to get back my investment. So if your PE ratio, Warren Buffett always said, ideally a PE ratio below 15 for an investment. That basically says if you put a dollar into that, it's going to take you 15 years to get your dollar back. Tesla, because they're now part of this ETF, part of an S&P 500, their price to earnings ratio is above, uh, the last time I looked, and this might have corrected uh, somewhat, but at some point that was trading at well over 1,200. 1,200 years to get your money back as a price to earnings ratio. Unreal. And there's so many valuations like that now in, in that universe that all you're basically doing with your dumb money is just paying the top tick for this thing. You're never getting like you're never getting value for it. All you're doing is you're is you're buying it in the hope that somebody's gonna be willing to buy it later on when you need to cash out of it. Yeah, spot on, man. And the funny thing about I mean, the earnings today, I look at Lynn's newsletter whenever it comes out, and they do the sort of cyclically adjusted PE ratios or CAPE ratio. And if you don't even know what that means, Lynn just goes extremely high or very high. And you're like, okay, yeah. uh, suggesting, I think it was about 30. That was like the average. So it's like, you're going to take you 30 years worth of earnings to get your capital back. You also take into account the fact that of the S&P 500, I think there's something like eight companies that, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screw up the numbers. So I, I won't even go out there, but it's literally the vast majority of performance this year, I think has been, Something like 54% of the performance of the S&P 500 this year has been um, attributed to like seven stocks. You yeah. know, the, the rest have been averaging at about like 4%. Yeah. On top of that with ETFs, you don't actually get 100% exposure to the underlying companies because there has to be a cash element too so that people who want to sell can actually redeem the ETFs for cash. So you're investing in only like 98% or whatever the, the figure might be. So, um, and the rest is cash. So you have like, you have all of those sort of downsides and at best you're going to be able to sort of achieve a market related return. And, and look, for some people that might be, that might actually suit them. But for people who are not like, I guess for people like who are Bitcoiners, I, I just don't see the merits. And, you know, and I, the, I, the other really big red flag that people often don't think about with this as well is, is if you're not hundred percent aligned with the way the world is heading, like some of these narratives that are getting pushed down from the top down, you know, mm -hmm. around ESG and all, all of these other social agendas that sort of get pushed down from, from these, you know, and this is, you get, you, you pull your tinfoil hat out a little bit with this, right. But you are absolutely enabling that through passive inflows because mm -hmm. what happens is it was all our superannuation funds. Basically a lot of them are using these, these ETFs to get exposure to a wide variety of markets but what you do is you give them your capital, you get exposure to the price of that share within that within that uh, vehicle, that investment vehicle, but you're also giving them your voting rights. 
So we're concentrating all of this power into the handful of a few. And what's really funny is that, and again, I, I don't know these numbers off the top of my head, but there was something, I might have even been in one, one of Lynn's articles recently around how much capital well, how much voting rights are concentrated into a few different, so the vanguards and the uh, black rocks of the world mm. have so much control now over all of these major companies that they are the ones basically shaping the narratives for everything that happens in, in capital markets because our money, our money, we're the, we're the dumb money, right? That's what they call us. And yeah, in, a, yeah. in, a, in a way we, we absolutely are because we're not even, we're not even leveraging off our capital by having a vote we're offsetting and we're giving that power away to these centralized entities. So the best way, if you don't like the fuckery that's going on, pardon the French in the world it's right now, best on. thing you can do is start your own self-managed super fund and put some exposure into Bitcoin. Cause you're voting with your money. Like you are voting out of that system. Hell yes, man. No, hundred percent. I actually never even thought about that. Um, and that makes absolute sense. One thing you touched on there and perhaps we can transition to this now is i mean we're not going to talk about esg that's a whole nother uh, that's a debate for another day although i don't think between you and i it would be much of a debate to be like yeah yeah we're on the same page uh energy now you you're a, a guy who actually understands energy markets and one of my most one of the most fascinating discoveries for me at least about a year into my bitcoin journey was that amazing relationship between bitcoin and energy markets talk to us a little bit about that relationship and um, perhaps even tie in just a little bit as to how energy actually works. And I'm sorry for having to repeat this because I missed the Bush Bash talk. <laughs> well, the Bush Bash talk was more around thinking about how you're going to plan your citadel. So okay, um, okay, I don't feel as bad. <laughs> that feels that feels bad. Yeah, that it's it's a really so it's interesting. Where in Australia we are. A little bit behind uh so our regulators are, are very uh controlling and they're not quite on the bitcoin train yet so as a result australia as a whole is is well behind other nations in terms of bitcoin adoption and bitcoin into integration but the thing about bitcoin is we have never had uh, an asset or a monetary good directly tied to energy this is basically tethering the analog digit and, and the digital worlds together through this use of energy and turning it into a into a monetary asset and what that means for markets is is pretty profound because energy markets are full of waste they're full of uh excess generational capacity and I'll, I'll explain what that that means in a sec and also in, in there's a lot of friction in getting energy from one place to another now when we look at going to 100 renewables you can think about that what you like but governments will are absolutely pushing towards that. And I firmly believe that Australia is probably one of the only countries that will be able to achieve that, but it's not going to come at zero cost. Mm. So the transition towards net zero for Australia, we do have access to great rainfall. So we we do have, we can tap into um, hydro. We've got wind and we've got access, you know, we've got a lot of coast, a lot of land, and we can tap into, um, you know, good sun resources as well. So, Solar resources and wind resources will make up most of that energy mix towards going to 100% renewables. But the problem is if you want to avoid rolling blackouts because wind and solar are intermittent, they're not consistent, they're unreliable. So if you're going to build a grid and engineer out that risk, 
basically what you've got to do is build a grid that's three times your maximum demand. Now, we have um, some pretty aggressive targets and we've got some pretty switched on people in the back end putting these these sort of papers together. Um, AEMO is our overarching regulator, AEMO, Australian Energy Market Operator, and they've put out a ISP, uh, a plan detailing how this transition may look. And they've said themselves that you've got to build a grid out three times your maximum demand. So what maximum demand means is when we all go home from work, Typically, our maximum demand on the east coast of Australia is between 3 and 9 p.m. So we get home, kids come home from school, they turn the telly on, we turn the air conditioners on, we fire up, you know, we start dinner. That's our peak demand. So what you've got to do, so when everybody's turning on their air conditioners, their computers, their light switches on at the same time, we've got to have generators going. And typically, historically, our generators are spinning machines. There's some sort of prime mover, whether it be coal or steam or gas, turning a turbine. This turbine is spinning in a magnetic field. The spinning of that that turbine within that magnetic field creates electricity, and we push that out. You've got to be doing it in real time. We don't have sophisticated energy storage devices or capacity Mm -hmm. within networks, so you've got to have that generator spinning with enough capacity to be able to soak up that maximum demand. And you've got to be able to do it with enough excess in in order to not bog that system down or in order for that to be stable. So what that is a really long way of saying is is when we go to a a renewables transition, wind is 30% efficient at best and solar is 19% efficient at best. That is why we need a grid that's going to be three times the size of our maximum demand. But the problem then lies is if we're going to have to build out a grid that's three times the size of our maximum demand, our billable amount is only ever the maximum demand, right? So we're Mm -hmm. never going to be able to bill for the extra two thirds in that capacity if we just do utilize the status quo. Now, a couple of things. Can I interrupt one thing quickly and just ask a question? When you say wind is 30% efficient and solar is 90%, uh, what does that actually mean? So if you've got, say, uh, how can I explain this easy? Uh, If you've got, say, a wind farm that's 100 kilowatts capacity, Mm -hmm. and if you spin that for an hour, that's 100 kilowatt hours. So you've you've, you've basically spun that up at full, full noise for the full hour. So you extrapolate that out over over a full year. They're basically saying if you've got a hundred kilowatts, you could you could bank on it only being able to generate thirty for most of that time because due to that intermittency of the wind. So if you've got a hundred kilowatts, you can bank on it only actually being able to deliver thirty on average across that whole sort of usage time. Does that make sense? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. And, Carry and on. It's the same yeah. with your solar. So your solar is a hundred kilowatts, right? But you can only, you know, it's about six, six and a half hours a day at best worth of generation. So, you know, you can never get 24-7 out of that. So that's why that's a little bit lower as well is because the sun obviously only shines for a portion of the day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, perfect. All right. Okay. So then we've got, and we've got that. And then when people talk about green, and this was before we jump into the mining side of it, I mean, we've obviously said no to nuclear. Is that largely because of ideological reasons in your in your mind or is there actually some yeah. legitimate reasons 
No, well, yes, ideological, I think, uh, as a bit of a hang-up. But funnily enough, I think that conversation started start to change because nuclear is a, a, a very, in my humble opinion, a very viable option for maintaining baseload. So the other really big elephant in the room uh, this might be get get a little bit too technical, so I'll try and I'll try and explain it as best I can. But one of the issues you have with a grid is your ability to drive fault current, what we call fault current. So basically, what that means is when you go and short something out, like you've got an appliance that's faulty, your circuit breaker at your house should trip. Yeah, we have <laughs> that same sort of system at a bigger scale. So we we want to make sure that when your you know your appliance breaks, it's your circuit breaker that trips, not the substation back here but okay. basically we are driving fault current to you to that appliance and fault current is good, good uh absolutely good because we make decisions on the network performance based on our ability to observe fault current so right back at a substation we'll have say uh i don't want to you know get get too technically but say we we monitor a feeder and we expect 100 amps on this feeder at a at a high voltage level at all times that's our normal load so anything below 100 amps we know is healthy if we all of a sudden see 400 we think oh that's out of the normal we want to trip and that's good so our ability to drive fault current right back from the source of the generator is very important it's vital for that health of that system for us to be able to maintain a safe um, network now what happens is the generator that thing's spinning the turbine spinning that's generating that electricity has a certain amount of, of what we call inertia mm -hmm. so if the network were to stop that thing's still spinning and it's still generating electricity and that's what pushes fault current into the network when there is something in trouble the fact that we've got inertia now when you take that away and you've only got solar panels you don't have any inertia and you've got no way to drive fault current anymore. And it's a really, really dangerous situation for the, for the grid when we don't have fault current. So that's another big flag, red flag for going towards 100% renewable because yeah. wind doesn't have a lot of inertia because it's generally a really slow turning turbine. Solar has a zero inertia. And that's why nuclear is a great example of being able to supply a baseload supply to the rest of the network that can also provide that inertia to make sure that it's a safe, safe environment. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And if you were to look at when people talk about something being renewable uh, in the context of solar, I'm also often reminded of those mines, images of kids in mines uh, mining for cobalt in Africa. And I, I can't remember the stats, but there's one or two African nations that provide you know a significant majority of um, of all the cobalt, which I understand is just an absolute critical aspect of it. So is that typically included when people are talking about the so-called renewableness of it? It's like, apparently these panels themselves are not biodegradable. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I'm just wondering if if Larry Fink and the boys at BlackRock, BlackRock when they're sitting there talking about ESG, whether they actually are factoring in the, you know, the first that it's not biodegradable and second, the all the, all the sort of actual energy because you're not going to be mining using solar to to get cobalt to then create solar panels you're actually using hydrocarbons as i understand yeah so um co cobalt's not necessarily used so much in solar panels my understanding i'm not intimately familiar with the chemistry behind it cobalt's m more in the into the batteries uh, which is the major concern but we've still got the same issues okay. with solar panels around silicon and you know, the crystalline structures that these things are made out of. There's a fair degree of um, silver 
uh, used in, in solar panels. And yes, that's a very, very major concern that I don't think has been, well, it's not given enough attention is what happens at the end of life of these things. What's going to happen like in terms of landfill, are they recyclable? All of those have still got massive, massive question marks, particularly with, with wind turbines. Like these wind turbines, there's a, actually a story just recently up up near where I live. Um, one of these reporters have gone in into this um, wind turbine graveyard. We've had a wind turbine up here for a number of years into the decades. I'm not, not exactly sure how how much but apparently the, the these blades have a bit of a shelf life so when these blades are replaced they're just thrown into the rainforest and they don't degrade oh, um God. okay and, and there's a god-awful amount worth of concrete being used in the footings of these things and and they're and they're you know the environmental devastation around the bird life and all that is is totally understated and underappreciated same with like pumped hydro dams they're a great concept there's another there's one up here called um at, at, at an old kidston gold mine uh so basically what it was they're repurposing these old pits which is perfect right so there's a uh, two open open pits from this gold mine one's higher than the other so they've directionally drilled through from the higher pit to the lower pit they're yeah. both full of water what they do is they use their solar there's a massive solar farm there and when the market market prices swing favorably they well, unfavorably, really, for export, they instead of exporting to the grid, they use their solar to pump from the lower dam to the higher dam, and they treat that like a massive battery. And then at nighttime, when the maximum demand picks up, and then there's a demand in energy prices, they're incentivized then to pump. So they release water from the top dam to the bottom dam through a hydro system. They generate electricity through a hydro scheme. It's brilliant. Yeah, but they they're utilizing resources that are, are, have already been there. So the dev, environmental devastation definitely happened. It just happened at, at a past past time. But uh, a lot of the time, I think we uh, when we when we're looking for new hydro dams. So there's a, a new one proposed um, down the southeast of Queensland. There somewhere, I'm not exactly sure where. But there's massive environmental destruction that happens when you build a dam. And I think sometimes we're just turning a blind eye to the, you know, frog species and possum species that we have to relocate or, or just, you know, theoretically drown in order yeah. to satisfy having a hydro system so we can store some some power. Yeah. It just sounds like when it comes to energy, there's no real sort of silver bullets. There's really trade-offs in here. It's, I mean, it's that's... greenwashing. That's right. Yeah. It, it's yeah. trade-offs. Yeah. I see I, I, I was supposed to include this line uh, in my talk at the Bush Bash, but I was a little bit um, dusty, as they say. So uh, it totally slipped my mind. But uh, I was trying to just stress the point of there's no there's no solutions. Uh, there's only trade-offs. And it's actually, it applies to almost everything. Uh, but the only people who believe uh, in solutions are uh, socialists and children. But that was what I was going to say. But anyway, it didn't. It didn't actually. Didn't actually happen. Talk to us now, uh, Daz, about mining Bitcoin in the context of energy, because as I understand, Bitcoin has this ability to become this. To, that is the sort of buy off first and last resort, and it is probably the. It's the only way that I'm aware of that energy energy creators oh geez I've, the, the words escaping me now are able to monetize wasted energy uh energy manufacturers if you like yeah so it it works quite a number of different ways so in the interim on the approach to like a net zero world a good example would be you've got a a site in mind for a solar farm for example now one of the biggest input costs to that project is to build out the grid connection 
So if there's no grid there. So uh, across the eastern seaboard of Australia, we're one big massive transmission network. So we are connected between Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, and into South Australia. We're all one big connected transmission network. So typically if you've got some sort of generational facility, whether that's solar, wind, hydro, coal-fired, gas-fired, you're going to want to jump onto the transmission network. So we send power over high voltage because it minimizes your losses when you've got to push power from one end of the country to the other over long distances. You do that over the transmission network, which is typically your really big steel towers um, that you see sort of in the, in the, in the, in the backward boondocks running along your highways and that sort of stuff. So you've got to get onto that transmission network. So one of the massive, you know, if you've got, a bit of desert in the middle of nowhere, right? But you got a shitload of sun. That's all well and good. You can go and throw all the solar farms you want out there. But if you've got nowhere to send that power, you've got no customer. So there's one way that Bitcoin mining plays a part there. You might be able to stage now your capital project. So you might be able to, you know, if if the one of the biggest input costs is that grid connection, you might be able to stand up your farm with a power purchasing agreement with with uh, a mining operator to go and dump some containers, start mining some Bitcoin, capitalize that project directly. And this is that we're tying back into what I was saying before. We've never had the ability to directly tie a monetary good to the use of energy before. Mm. Uh, so we park these miners on, we capitalize that. They sell the Bitcoin theoretically and fund their capital project get it off the ground, get your grid connection in stages. And then, and then the Bitcoin miners can up and leave if there's no, no, no more um, uh, excess capacity there. So that's one way where you approach that hundred percent renewable. And then earlier I mentioned as well, that in order for us to go hundred percent renewable, we'll need a grid that's three times the size of maximum demand. So there's two thirds of your capital projects in the past where that you've built out that you are never making money on because there's no customer. Our maximum yeah. demand is our maximum demand. Therefore, we introduce new demand in the form of Bitcoin mining and other things, mind you. Like, um, it won't. I'm not um positing that all two thirds of that will be Bitcoin mining because we can utilize that excess capacity to do other things like pumped, um, sorry, like stored hydrogen is is one thing that's definitely um possible for Australia, and that comes with its own concerns. But it's definitely a marriage between these other forms of of energy storage right um so you can either store it directly in form of energy either with batteries hydro systems or with you know creating hydrogen or you can store it directly into a monetary good where you just sell it and and you convert it into bitcoin and and i would suggest you know if you're smart you stack the bitcoin over a long (laughs) term right you don't you don't just sell it but um that's where it ties directly in and we can introduce a new customer to the grid where that hasn't existed before. And if we don't do that, the people who are going to be paying for the excess capacity that of that, the 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 capitalization or the capital requirements to build out that grid is going to be taxpayers, either through taxpayer incentives through the government or directly through the consumer price of cost of energy. It, wow. it's, it's going to come to the fold in, in one way. The, I mean, these guys who, who build these projects, they don't do it for fun, right? They do it for profit. So... Uh, it's either got to be heavily subsidized by the government or our electricity prices are going to go through the roof. Unless yeah, so it seems as if uh, until such time as the Aussie regulator is uh, sort of more comfortable with the notion of Bitcoin, the taxpayer and or consumer are going to be 
paying inordinate yeah, energy bills and unnecessarily so. Yep. One hopes though that with the likes of BlackRock now talking about an ETF and various other types of things like that, you would imagine that it's slowly, you know, I, I tend to repeat the same phrases and people that hear me would go, oh God, this guy uses it all the time. But the water's not that cold. It's I think it's warming up in the sense that I find that like it's becoming more and more acceptable. I think maybe three, four years ago, if you tried to have that discussion about energy and uh, Bitcoin mining, you would have been dismissed outright. But I think now the likes of Chevron and several other big energy companies offshore, they've got Bitcoin mining operations going there. And at some point, it's going to be a bit of a political risk for them not to, because eventually consumers are going to be like, why the hell aren't you doing this? And why are we paying so much for energy? So, you know, unfortunately, these things, I think, take time. And, you know, us Bitcoiners, you've got a long time horizon, you know, so we sort of, we, 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 I think I know where it's going, but um, there there's does a, still a, seem to be ideological resistance there, it does. Yeah. And there's a few reasons I think for that is, is mainly like Australia being such a vast and widely spread country, we supply electricity a long way and into regions where they're never profitable. So we're government owned. Most of our infrastructure is government owned. So the, the need for profit is not really there, right? Cause they absorb a lot of these costs and they've been used to doing it where you contrast that to like Texas who are very pro approach to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the best customer that's ever existed for energy markets because we're fully controllable. We're fully portable and we can be, you know, we're not, I'll just expand on that um, controllable, right? Where we, we can expand, we can ramp up, we can ramp down within minutes. That has never happened before. Typically, when we needed a really large load sink in the past for grid stability, which is another issue I can, I can expand on a bit later if you like, but we had to use like aluminium smelters and stuff like that. And they can't be turned on in a dime. If you've got a yeah. whole big heap of molten steel or, or something like that, it goes off really, really, really quickly. So you can't just turn them off on a dime. And you contrast that then to like other quote unquote technologies around, you know, data centers and so forth. You can't switch them off on a dime either because Amazon Web Services, they need to be up and running. Otherwise, people are going to be pissed, right? Same with like, you know, Netflix service. People are going to be stewing if they can't stream services where Bitcoin just TikTok's next block. Like it doesn't matter that we lose 10 meg worth of load in Australia. Like, okay, blocks may slow down marginally, but it'll, and if it's a prolonged approach, it'll just adjust itself within the next epoch. Like, and it'll just backwards look and do its difficulty adjustment. It'll just readjust if, if that much hash rate comes offline in one hit, it doesn't matter. That's yeah. never happened before. You know, with, with, within energy markets, you don't have someone who can stand up and say, I'll take 10 gigawatts worth of load and I'll do it right now. Oh, by the way, you need it back in a hurry because, you know, something's happened like a storm's rolled into Queensland and blacked half of it out. And we've all of a sudden lost, you know, a couple of hundred um, megawatts worth of demand. We just switch off and we give that power back to the grid. People don't have rolling blackouts. It's the perfect solution. It's phenomenal. It's uh, it's only when governments are in control of things and you've sort of stripped out the profit motive that gross inefficiencies just become writ large. It's just that's just the nature of all government uh, led infrastructure. Uh, having come from South Africa, uh, shockingly, we too have a we've got a single 
government owned uh, grid and yeah. would you believe it but it's inefficient and it is the norm to have these days eight hour blackouts and what people now need to do is have inverters so they can just run their appliances they've got solar panels in in some cases people are worried about water security they'll have a a borehole it's just remarkable how inefficient government is at anything and there's just such a reluctance on their part often to let the rains go but once the private sector gets involved you can just see dramatic inefficiency gains and so one hopes that in time we move in that direction it's just well, i think be, it's a be... question of when not if because eventually bitcoin is going to become so undeniable that it will become really fiscally irresponsible on their part because they're going to be watching what other countries around the world are doing and i really sense though jazz maybe you share this is that you know a few years ago and i think even two years ago everyone's talking about like oh bitcoin uses as much energy as pick a country or whatever right i don't see that much stuff about that anymore because it's almost like we flogged that all to death and it just doesn't work so now we've got to whinge about the composition and you're like well actually it's the greenest industry probably on earth relative to you know whether it's manufacturing or you know there's there's so many different areas where bitcoin is just so much more efficient and you think like at what point are they going to just say all right <laughs> we should just get on board this thing works and even if you hate bitcoin do you know what it's it's like mark to market pricing it's liquid you can get rid of it instantaneously you don't even need to do a thing with it just say i don't want this bullshit and you sell it it's that simple yeah and uh, to be to be fair I'm, I'm starting to get a bit more vocal within uh, my where i work and those conversations are starting to gain some interest and like you said earlier really good point around i think this black rock etf situation will just do wonders for its legitimacy as an asset because you know, I, I was kind of circling around this this point earlier, and I got distracted. But um, with the government owning all of the infrastructure, they also don't see a need for Bitcoin. So they they see, you know, because we do have a relatively stable banking system, we have a relatively stable currency. So it's like, why, why do we even care about this thing? And yeah. I think that's one of the major barriers to 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 entry around it. They're they're still looking at the volatility of an asset called bitcoin not the network and the enabling of you know banking the unbanked across jurisdictions that aren't in their interests it's not in their backyard they don't care yeah. um, but i do think that narrative starting to shift it is legitimizing itself and i think that's what us bitcoiners have got a big role to play there and we have had a big role to play in the past with that you know your podcast is a classic example of this bitcoin why Bitcoin and not crypto? Such a big distinction between the two. And I think people are starting to wake up to the fact that this thing is different. It is a commodity, mm. you know, reinforced by some of the language around the Gary Gensels of the world, like lump him or hate him or whatever, and Bitcoin's for everyone and, and whatever. But at the end of the day, it does help to legitimize itself, particularly in the eyes of governments where it's going to play a, a really important part. If we don't do this, we will have rolling blackouts or we will have exorbitant energy prices. That's the reality of it. So I welcome the sort of attitudes towards this because I do worry about what sort of world my kids are going to grow up. Like, you know, I'm yeah. stuck on this prison island. I think I said to you, like I'm a fourth generation convict. I don't have another yeah. passport. I need to make it work here. 
yeah, you know, yeah. So I'm pretty, pretty passionate about making it work here. You know, and we've got, you know, my wife's family's here. She's, she's not never going to move to El Salvador. I don't have that option. <laughs> Ditto, I think uh, between you and I. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is like the conversation and the narrative of Bitcoin has shifted quite dramatically within weeks given that BlackRock has almost endorsed it. I don't think for a minute that he actually, at his core, is a Bitcoin or believes anything like that. But, I, you know, it, it's just the, it's the narrative and it's the perception that matters. You know, and the funny thing is, like, I saw, there's two things I thought, I thought of while you were chatting. The one was, I saw something today that I actually posted, which was the S&P 500 has been more volatile than Bitcoin over the last six months. So I think that's something that's a bit interesting because, no wonder I felt like this whole this this market's been like really snoozy because it's just like okay it just looks like it's thirty all the time you know and and the other thing was I was listening to something that I saw posted by Amber which was um, a talk by Saifedean and um, he was just saying like Bitcoin is like financial gunpowder you know it doesn't doesn't matter like you're eventually going to embrace it like you know you could have been a purist if you were the knights on the back of a horse and going we don't want this stuff but eventually it's just like okay let's just embrace this because your enemies are going to use it and you're going to have to use it too so i feel like that's how it's going to work with bitcoin uh you know i don't propose that like you know bitcoin is the oracles or anything but i do think there's something like of our ability to see into the future and maybe it's our the sort of time horizon too like we're, we're playing i always say five day test cricket like and maybe like we're not even at the end of day one like i'm still playing like you know the, the crypto bros play sort of like you know t20 or anything, something less than that whereas mm. we've got a long-term time horizon you know talking about the values and that sort of thing on bitcoin i want to now shift to the bitcoin bush bash that we just had in palm code yeah. your neck of the woods absolutely loved firstly the environment dreamy i mean the weather was a little bit subpar unfortunately um sorry for that but i will say uh yeah please please uh but i can say like truly what a dreamy location like knocked it out the park so i love that and so thanks so much for organizing that um you know i tell people who i meet here in brisbane when i go to the 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 brizzy meetup like it's probably the most fun you'll have with your clothes on like truly like you just go from one conversation to the next. Everyone is so open. Like we're all a bit weird in some way. Um, and it's almost <laughs> as if we're kind of, we're spread out across this massive country. I mean, you've got Pete coming from Perth, which is just like real commitment. But like, it's almost like we live in these little, like little worlds of our own. And then we get together and we just can't stop talking. I mean, you know, and there's just never enough conversation to go around. You literally just one thing to the next. Like, you know, t- tell us a little bit about your kind of uh, experience in this last bush bash and, uh, you know, touch on maybe a little bit about like the culture of Bitcoin and how it's kind of imbued in the in the bush bash. So many, so many things to say because uh, all of what you said then really resonated with me. So firstly, really lucky and blessed to be able to have it in our backyard. So Yapoon was where I first met you actually, was my first bush bash. And then... Uh, <laughs> You know, not all these virgin bush bashers can say that they get the next one in their backyard. So uh, must have done something. Must have done something right to whiz. No um, proof of work needed for you, dude. That's the only thing. I'd exactly, say. exactly. So I had to put that. I had to put a good show on, right? Because I was in my backyard. I'm like, well, my proof of work has to be in the in the performance. You know. Yeah. So um, magical weekend, mate. Like you say, I think we are all a we're the weird kid in your friendship circles, right? 
the guy who's tied, you know, reel down the Mises rabbit hole and the praxeology and start talking about human action and why people behave the way they do and why the money's corrupt and how money is the root of all of our societal problems. And, you know, you are the weird kids. So it's great when you get together. It's like, here's all the other weird kids. They get together and they've got finally got some friends to play with. <laughs> it's so true. Hey? But, exactly- you know, in, in saying that, it's I love it because Bitcoin has challenged my thinking. I don't agree with everyone on every issue, but when somebody's really passionate about a certain take, I tend to go, like you said earlier, we're all really well read or we all really put in the work to understand something. So when you come across in a conversation and you hear someone start to get really passionate about a certain thing and and I don't agree with it, I sit there and I pause and I go, Betcha that guy's done more work than me on this. So <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe there's something here that I'm not that I'm not understanding. And I and I take it, I take notes. If it's a subject I'm not interested in, then I just move on, right? But like I just find it fascinating that you can have really in-depth conversations with really passionate people. Like, yeah. and that's ultimately what it's about. And it's intellectually stimulating not to say that i don't get intellectually stimulated that's an insult to my friends and family because i absolutely do to some to some degree but it's generally you know people are tired man like we're a rare breed like people are just overworked and they all they want to do is come home you know they're exhausted the kids are tired they've slogged their ass out their money's going backwards all they want to do is mind numbing Netflix and sit there and 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 get on with their life and roll on to the next day. They're just existing, man, and that's the sad reality about it. And I think Bitcoin is, if anything else, are just passionate people with hope. Like it's it's it is a meme. It is a a bit of a uh, a, a cliche, but like it it honestly, that's what it feels like when you go to these bush bashes. You feel hope. You have mm. really really good conversations with people around how we're going to fix it because we will yeah. fix it yeah uh, absolutely I couldn't agree more like i resonate with everything you said there because you know you hear people talking about stuff and you kind of go yeah i don't agree with you but i'm going to listen and you know it, it and i respect you whereas you know dare i say often i have hear people say things and i don't feel like it's very well considered and well reasoned or well thought out. And I'll probably dismiss them from the outset uh, pretty early on. I don't give people much more than like a minute often to judge. Uh, whereas a Bitcoin, I'm probably more inclined to just sit and give them that little extra bit of time because I feel like, as you say, these tend to be people who put in the time. And, you know, you, again, you, you can arrive at very different conclusions. But what I found, generally speaking, is people are receptive to conversations and willing to listen to everyone. And it's almost like quite egalitarian too, which is an interesting dynamic too, in the sense that it's not, you know, like Alex uh, who did the praxeology chat, you know, he'd be going, you know, like I'd say normally, frankly, I'd dismiss a 29 year old and maybe that's a bit stupid, but I'd be like, listen, bro, I've got like a decade on you, you know? Um, But like, (laughs) I'm like listening to what he's talking about and he'll be, he'll be talking. I'll be like, holy shit, this kid is smart. Like, you know, like I wasn't thinking about this stuff when I was 29. And then you hear, you hear some of the older fellas talking and then I certainly tune my ear in big time because I'm like, you got some wisdom. Uh, And and one of the most interesting conversations I actually had, shout out to William of, uh, Sir William, dare I say, of Rotherham. We're talking about like, you know, the whole Rona episode. And 
I was just saying like, you know, plan B, et cetera. Like if they did a lockdown again, like I want a plan. And he just said like, I just can't see that happening in my lifetime, um, at least in my lifetime. And he just sort of just ran through a series of events in his life, some of the challenges. And he, and just as an example was conscript, conscript, oh gosh, can I say that word now? Conscription. Conscription, you said it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, forcing the government basically saying, here's a gun. I need you to go and kill these people. Why? Ah, uh, yeah, they're, they're bad. They're bad. Okay. Uh, chances are it's probably for oil or some sort of other issue, but they'll, they'll, they'll tell you whatever reason it is. That's real hell. Like imagine your child having to go to war and you think about some of the things. So in, you know, after that conversation, I was going, Oh, you're so sensible. Can't I just be enraged and passionate? <laughs> but it was spot on. It was like, yeah, COVID was shit. And, you know, we had to sit indoors for like, you know, a couple of years and we were, we were raging behind our, you know, tweeting away, mostly anonymously. But compared to what some people have had to endure historically, it's not that bad. I, I don't agree with it, but it all just puts things in context. So it's like, I listen to that and I go, yeah. And, and so those are the kinds of conversations I have that leave me going, you know, as Grant Williams would say, hmm, at the mm. end, you know, like, sure. okay. Yeah, things so, that make you go, hmm, mm, totally. Yeah, I agree. Just full of signal, like that. Ultimately, just a whole weekend full of signal. Great conversation, great people, and like the bush bash is great. But I, I honestly think it's the conversations that you have at the events afterwards yeah. over lunch, and that's what actually that's what Wiz said to me as well. At one day we were running a little bit behind, and we thought, oh, we'll just have a shorter lunch. But he's like, no, nah, you know what? We're going to have, I think we broke at 12.30 and we were going to come back at 2 o'clock because he's yeah. like, that's the bush bash. It's the it's the lunchtime conversation. It's the camaraderie and the making, you know, making friendships and all that sort of thing. That's what the bush bash really is. Or Everything else, the presentations, they're great. Don't get me wrong, but that's not what the bush bash is about. And I just sat back and went, huh, yeah, that's really is what it's about. That's why I'm here, you know. 100%. Hundred yeah. percent. Eh? We've uh, one of uh, one of the brainchilds of the bush bash is almost like a bush 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 bash, which uh, is almost like a primal version of it, where we go hunting and uh, awesome. sit around a campfire. And so, uh, one of the dudes I met there, Blake, uh, apparently has a, has um, you know a farm, and we can go and explore around. And I was just like, "Oof, wow!" Uh, and then uh, you know we had a tazzy fella come along the whole thing was epic and for anyone who hasn't made the mission you got to go and give it a whirl i mean the pilgrimage uh, like doesn't matter which one you go to you don't have to go to the mall you go to whichever one you can make but you know it's yes. a pilgrimage every bitcoin i must make yeah the next one is the 28 24th to 28th i believe in november and then I'll also just give a quick shout out to anyone who's hanging around in the Queensland, Southeast Queensland, because uh, I know that's a bit of a mission for you. We're going to be doing a bush, bush bash where we'll be doing some camping and Bitcoin weekend of the 18th of August. So awesome. if anyone's interested, hit me up. Uh, there'll be hikes, there'll be rivers, there'll be chats. I'm absolutely pumped. Uh, yeah. Um, last thing I'll leave you with, uh, or maybe you can leave me with this is, uh, how would you say Bitcoin's changed you as a person? In so many different ways, mate. Like it's made me look at the incentive structures around money, really, and just it touches on everything, whether that's from education to health to to everything. So it's it's left me a a, a better, more rounded, well prepared person. I think in many respects, 
going down so many rabbit holes around, you know, carnivore diets to, you know, to health in general, to pharmaceuticals through to, if, if you peel back the layers, you find the corruption of money's at the root of most of the, 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 the fuckery that goes on in this world and Bitcoin does ultimately fix it. So if anything, it's, it's taught me to trust in learning, not to take anything at face value and to do the work and verify and, that's something I'll I'll be teaching my kids, you know, and that's something I'll be forever grateful for. Yeah, amen, brother. Yo, we that's brilliant. I love it. That's exactly what I feel. You question everything and do the work. Just do the work. There's no excuses. Yeah, 100%. awesome, man. This has been really cool, and I would awesome. love it if you uh, did a little bit of a a plug. Uh, just remind people about your book again, and then where they can find you, uh, social media and all that jazz. And uh, we can, can pack it up. Sure, man. So, yeah, uh, at D-A-Z-B-E-A on Twitter, whatever it's called now. Uh, I'm also on Nostar. Uh, just look for at Daz, I think. is I am on there. Uh, www.lookingglasseducation.com for free resources, free content, free courses. And you'll also see a link in there to um, Beers for Bitcoin, our book. So that's available for purchase on Amazon. So if you can afford the sats, we'd love the support. We funnel the money back into uh, the education with Looking Glass. All, all those sats will be, you know, hodled, hodled and put to good use. I do believe that. Epic, man. Thanks, Daz. Been a pleasure. Pleasure, Dal. Good on you, buddy. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and that you got some value out of it. Either way, hit me up on Twitter. And let me know what you think. My handle is Dale21M. If you've got any suggestions as to people you think I should be talking to or topics I should address to, I would love that sort of feedback. Otherwise, if you want to support the show, there's a couple different ways you can do that. The first is just to share it amongst your friends and family. The more that people hear the message that Bitcoin and crypto are not the same thing, the better. And I want to help people understand that. The second thing you can do is give me a five-star review on whichever podcast app you're using. Of course, that's only if I deserve it. And last but not least, if you want to stream Satsmoe via the Fountain app, I'm not going to say no, but it's not expected. Thank you so much for your support thus far. It means the world to me. I appreciate the hell out of you and the best is yet to come. Much love, friends. I'll see you on the other side.